Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Today on the Beeson Podcast, we have the privilege of listening to a lecture by Dr. Karen Jobes. She is the Gerald F. Hawthorne Professor of New Testament Greek and Exegesis at Wheaton College. Karen Jobes is one of the leading evangelical scripture scholars working today in the life of the church. She has a fascinating background. She was firmly established in a career in computer science when she realized one day that she enjoyed preparing for and teaching her adult Sunday school class far more than anything she was doing in her job. And this led to a career change from computer science. She went to seminary, eventually received a Ph.D. in biblical hermeneutics from Westminster Theological Seminary and has taught now for several years at Wheaton College. She came to Beeson to deliver a series of lectures called Strangers in a Strange Land, Christian Identity in the First Epistle of Peter. And what we're going to hear today is the opening talk in that series of lectures. You'll notice how she begins talking about families, how important families are for us, and then quickly she takes us back into the world of first century Christians, the one to whom the first letter of Peter was originally written. And she comes to focus in particular on this question of suffering the persecuted church, and what it means to suffer for Jesus Christ. And she gives a very special reading, I think, of this this text in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Very challenging message and lecture from Professor Karen Jobes, on Strangers in a Strange Land, Christian Identity, in the first epistle of Peter. Let's listen to Karen Jobes. Who are you? If that kind of question is asked at the social gathering... We might hear answers like, well, I'm a professor, or I'm John's wife, or I'm Amy's mother, because we tend to define ourselves, don't we, by our professions and by our relationships. Certainly, one of the most formative influences in our self-identity is the family into which we were born. For it's from our parents that we get our genetic propensities, our innate intellectual potential, our place in the socioeconomic structure, and our reputation among associates. Whatever inheritance we may have coming to us depends on our parents. From our parents, we get our ethnic and racial identity, and we get our rights and responsibilities as a citizen of a particular nation. The home that our parents provide, using that word in its broadest sense, uh, shapes our relationship to the world in which we must make our way, whether for good or for bad. Our hope in life, or our lack of it, stems largely from how our parents fared in this world. 
Now, the Apostle Peter is writing to people whose self-identities are being shaken and severely tested. Their relationships, their reputations, their place in the social order, possibly even their ability to function professionally have come under attack. As we read further in 1 Peter, we learn that these people have been accused of wrongdoing, they have been the targets of malicious talk, they are being insulted and verbally abused. They are being misunderstood by people who have influence and power over their lives. Peter describes this situation as a painful trial. And the trial has become severe enough that these people are beginning to feel threatened with harm and even ashamed of who they are. Who are these people? Peter addresses them as God's chosen, visiting strangers, participants in the diaspora, or as the NIV translates it, the scattering of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, provinces of the Roman Empire that we now uh, call the nation of Turkey. In the very first verse of his letter, Peter identifies his readers with the ancient nation of Israel by opening his letter with a reference to the diaspora and closing it with a reference to Babylon in chapter 5, verse 13. Peter frames the life situation in which he and his readers find themselves as not unlike the Babylonian exile of God's chosen people who had been scattered away from their homeland and had become visiting strangers and resident aliens in lands and cultures. Peter also refers to these people as visiting strangers and later as resident aliens. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, both of these terms are used to describe the great patriarch Abraham, Moses while he is sojourning in Midian, Elimelech and his family in the book of Ruth as they live in Moab, and the Israelites while living in the land of Egypt. And later, God made very special provision for resident aliens living among his people, Israel. Now, one of the characteristics of the visiting stranger and the resident alien, as these terms are used in the Bible, is that these people did not participate in the customs and rituals of the culture in which they were living. Now, the third way that Peter identifies his readers with God's chosen nation uh, is by describing them as having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, whom Peter calls the Father. They have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, who has set them apart. And they have been chosen by God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, and that purpose is the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, they've been chosen uh, for the purpose of the new covenant affected in Christ's blood. Now, these people who are being accused and insulted and maligned and misunderstood are Christians. These are our brothers and sisters of the first century. Peter invokes abundant grace and peace 
on these chosen visiting strangers whose self-identity is being shaken and threatened by their relationship with their society. He writes to encourage them by explaining why they are suffering such a painful trial and how they should behave in the midst of it. His goal is to get them to rethink the basis of their self-identity, to reflect the reality of who they really are. Peter reminds his readers that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has extended his great mercy by giving Christians a new birth. I cannot think of a more sweeping way of expressing new identity in Christ than the concept of a new birth. The born-again Christian has a completely new identity because we have a new father. For the Christian, the most formative influence in our self-identity is to be the great family of God into whom we have been born again. Peter explains that it is from God our Father that Christians get our spiritual propensities, our place in the socioeconomic structure, and our reputation among associates. Because we have a new Father, we have a new inheritance, one that is kept for us in heaven far beyond the reach of the falling stock market, hallelujah, and real estate value. From God our Father, we get a new uh, racial and ethnic identity, so to speak, and we now carry a new passport, giving us the rights and responsibilities as a citizen in the kingdom of God. Our new home in the household of God now shapes relationship our relationship to the world in which we have to make our way as Christians. Our hope in life is no longer based on how our parents fared, but our hope in life is now based on the unchanging fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we just so gloriously celebrated. Now Peter writes in verse 6 that the Christian's new birth into a living hope and into an imperishable, unfading inheritance that cannot be spoiled is a source of great joy, and I trust that you've experienced that great joy. And how I wish that Peter had ended the sentence right there and put a period, but he didn't. Peter makes the concession that even though joy in who we are and our relationship with God through Christ is the bedrock for Christian identity, that nevertheless it is true that Peter's readers will have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials for a little while. Now, later in his letter, Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Now, wait a minute, Peter. What do you mean by that? You mean to say that suffering is something normal? Suffering is something to be expected? I mean, when I signed on to Christianity, you know, in college, back in college, I was told that one of the four spiritual laws was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Anybody hear that one before? What's the suffering stuff? Bait and switch? Now, let us not forget that Peter is writing a letter of encouragement, and it really is encouragement, to explain that the new identity that we have as born again in Christ necessarily brings Christians into some degree of conflict with their society. 
making them visiting strangers and resident aliens in exile from their homeland, and consequently shaking the very foundations on which self-identity had been previously established. Whether it be conflict from without or conflict from within, suffering all kinds of trials is, according to Peter, the normal result of Christian life that should not take us by surprise. Now, Peter is very careful to delineate exactly the kind of suffering that he refers to. It is not the kind of suffering that comes to all human beings, uh, the suffering of disease or disability that is common to all. And it is certainly not the kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves as the consequence of our own sin. Uh, Peter writes, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, not even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, Peter takes this concept of suffering for being a Christian beyond the idea that, well, maybe it's going to happen to you and maybe it won't. He presses it so far as to say in verses, chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that is, you don't allow suffering to drive you to sin, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, think about this. Peter is actually encouraging his readers by telling them that Christians are called to, uh, by God to suffer unjustly, and that by doing so, Christians follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Because Jesus suffered, Christians are called to suffer. Are you feeling encouraged yet? Now, at a time earlier in my Christian life, when I was trying to get my mind around the idea of vicarious atonement, I misunderstood that to mean vicarious suffering. I thought that because Jesus suffered, that meant that I didn't have to that he suffered in my place. But that's exactly the opposite of what Peter says here. Because Jesus suffered unjustly, Christians are called to suffer unjustly and to endure it without sinning in response. There's the rub. Now, when was the last time that you suffered because you bear the name of Christ? I don't mean the kind of suffering that we experience because of our common human condition or because of the consequences of your own sin, but do you suffer because you're a Christian? And I would be surprised uh, if you haven't, because I know as, as students on a secular campus or faculty in a secular school or living as a, as a business person in this world uh, by, by Christian values, that probably has been the experience of many of you, at least at some occasions in life. Now, I'm fascinated by the lives of the early Christian martyrs. I didn't realize they would be looking down on me as I say this. 
But uh, particularly, you know, Polycarp and Ignatius, Perpetua, I'm, I'm just inspired by their stories of such boldness and courage. You know, and I've heard it said that at the Council of Nicaea, there were 318 delegates from the churches, 318 people, and fewer of them, fewer, fewer than 12 of them, had not lost an eye or a hand or were not limping on a leg maimed by torture for the name of Christ. Fewer than 12 people out of 318. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel pretty grateful that God has appointed us to live in 21st century America, where that kind of martyrdom is uh, probably, Lord willing, something that we'll never be asked to face. And I wonder if this isn't partly why First Peter is not really a very popular book in the churches of North America. But it's a very popular book in countries where Christians are routinely oppressed and persecuted because of their Christian identity. Uh, perhaps we think, those of us living comfortably, more or less, in North America, that if God should call us to suffer for the name of Christ, well, we know in the New Testament where to look to get at some encouragement. And then Peter's teaching would be relevant. But that's not how Peter puts it. We, no less than the first century Christians of Asia, need to reshape our identity in accordance with the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And Peter says that Christians are called to suffer unjustly for the name of Christ. And so that set me off thinking about what it might mean uh, to we Christians who have the very good fortune to be living in a time and place of relative safety and social acceptance. What does this mean for us? Now, back in 1896, 1896, more than 100 years ago, a Christian pastor and former editor of the Christian Herald, uh, Charles Sheldon, wrote a series of Sunday night sermons that were inspired by 1 Peter 2.21 and the thought that Christians are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. He wrote his sermons in the genre of narrative fiction about a hypothetical, well-to-do American church whose pastor and members were shaken to their very core when a homeless man begging for food died on the doorstep of their church. As a result, a core group in the church vowed to make every decision every day for one year only after asking and thinking of the question, what would Jesus do? Sheldon's sermons uh, were published in a book entitled In His Steps. And it has, that book has since sold more than 30 million copies. It's still being published today. I recommend it to you if it's not familiar to you. But, you know, I have to admit that I've always been a little bit wary about this question, what would Jesus do? 
and especially as it has been revived among our youth culture today. Those people who buy WWJD bracelets and posters and baseball caps kind of makes me wonder if Jesus would have sold WWJD posters and bracelets and baseball caps. But I've been a little wary of this question, uh, first of all, for a practical reason. It seems to me that when faced with really difficult decisions and, and situations, Jesus could simply do some kind of miracle, or he could speak words of such power uh, that the situation would be totally transformed, and, and that somehow we could never really hope to imitate what Jesus would do on a practical, in a practical way. And then secondly, I've been a little wary of the WWJD question theologically, because it seems to me that it all too easily can be understood as a slogan of liberal Protestantism, uh, that shifts the essence of Christianity away from sin and atonement and onto Jesus' ethical teachings, uh, kind of making him a, a first-century Dear Abby or Ann Landers. You know, what should I do? Uh, Jesus as a sage of good advice for living. But after studying First Peter, uh, it, this book has helped me to bring the WWJD question into a sharper focus that does, I think, make it of practical value and, and theological sense. When Peter says uh, that by suffering unjustly, when he says this in verse chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, that when Jesus uh, suffered unjustly, he left us an example. He used a Greek word that referred to the pattern given to children from which they would trace their letters as they learned how to write. So example is a, a much too weak English word for this idea. Larry, we've got to remember this at our committee meeting. Example is a much too weak uh, translation of that word. Our lives are to be, as Christians, are to be copies of Jesus' life. But in what sense? Now, Peter goes on to say that Jesus left his example uh, for the purpose that we might follow in his footsteps. Now, now think about this. If you were going to follow someone's footsteps in the snow, and I know this is a really bad image here in the sunny south, but I trust you've seen snow, you know what I'm talking about. If you're going to follow someone's footsteps, you know, the snow's really deep, it hasn't been shoveled, and you want to kind of follow after someone who's broken the path through the snow... You don't just kind of imitate the way the person walks and just head off in your own direction, do you? You actually put your steps in theirs, which necessarily means heading in the same direction and following the same path. And so just as Jesus died because of who he was, King of the Jews, Son of the Most High One, so are Christians to suffer because of our identity. Peter says that Christians are to head in the exact same direction as Jesus, which means walking through unjust suffering without sinning, walking through death and the grave, that's not the end, keep on walking into that glory that he achieved in his resurrection. It's no accident that discipleship in the New Testament is so often referred to as following Jesus.
So the example of Christ's unjust suffering gives us a fairly specific answer to the question, what would Jesus do? But it's an answer that's broadly applicable to the various situations of our lives that are so different from each other and so different from those of our first century brothers and sisters to whom Peter was writing. Every day and in every situation, Jesus would choose to do what was true to his identity as the Son of God, even though he might be misunderstood, accused, maliciously maligned, insulted, and suffer social alienation to the point of execution. Few of us will be called to suffer to a similar extent, but all of us are called to be true to our identity as children of God, even if we must suffer because our identity is in Christ rather than the things on which our society evaluates and bases identity. Do you suffer unjustly for the name of Christ that you bear? In closing, let me just mention briefly three thoughts about how maybe the church should be suffering a little bit more than perhaps we are. Firstly, the Christians uh, to whom Peter was writing were suffering uh, because as a result of their new birth, they were living by different priorities, values, and allegiances than their pagan neighbors in that society. And those differences were not just private in their heart differences, but those differences were apparently visible enough as to cause their associates to take notice and for their associates to think it really strange that these Christians uh, don't participate in the same customs and rituals and to therefore heap abuse on them. Is the church today willing to suffer alienation from our society for the name of Christ? The statistics I hear are true. It would seem that most Christians today, even those who consider themselves evangelicals, are not terribly uh, distinguishable from unbelievers. We divorce at the same rate. We have the same addictions. We seek the same forms of entertainment often. I don't know. You can add to your list. You know what I'm talking about. First Peter has challenged me to re-examine my relationship with American society and to where I find values in conflict with those of Christ to take that seriously enough to be willing to suffer alienation from my own society, to be willing to become a visiting stranger and resident alien in my own culture. The church should be an alternate society a Christian colony in a strange land. Secondly, second way maybe we need to suffer a little bit more. We often think of sin as yielding to the temptation of pleasure. But I wonder if the real power of sin lies in our unwillingness to suffer with unfulfilled needs, regardless of how legitimate those needs may be. Is that not what self-denial means? 
And Jesus linked self-denial with the very idea of following in his footsteps when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, for instance, isn't the temptation to lie often an attempt to save face rather than face the consequences of the truth? Isn't the temptation to cheat on an exam because we're unwilling to suffer the loss of reputation or other consequences that failure might bring? Uh, Isn't sexual sin often the alternative to suffering by living with uh, deep emotional and physical needs unmet? I think you get the picture. And and maybe this is what Peter has in mind when later in his letter he makes that very mysterious statement, arm yourselves also with the same attitude as Jesus, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, I think what Peter is saying there is we should be willing to suffer self-denial rather than to be willing to sin. And finally, I wonder if if part of our calling to suffer for the name of Christ is not through associating ourselves with those who are suffering, for the name of Christ, both here and around the world. I am very saddened when I hear, for instance, the churches of Latin America and other places speak with such disdain of the North American church because they have perceived that we have turned a deaf ear to their suffering. Is apathy for those who suffer for Christ an unwillingness to suffer with them? You know, Jesus said to those he cursed, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Jesus' words cut to the heart. Even the poorest American Christians are probably pretty well off compared to our brothers and sisters in the third world. Dear friends, could we not be willing to suffer having a little less so that others in need might have more? The church is a colony, an island of one culture in the middle of another. When we are born again, we have a new self-identity, and our citizenship is transferred to the kingdom of God. We become, in whatever culture we are living, resident aliens and visiting strangers. The church is a colony of strangers living in a strange land that is not our home. And that Christian colony must be recreated in each new generation. 
That's why we have uh, fine Christian colleges and, and seminaries like Beeson to raise up that next generation of church leaders, leaders who will very clearly hear the call to suffering, the cost of following Jesus, and who will be willing to follow as needed and to call others to do so as well. Please join me in a brief prayer as I use the words of a theologian of a previous generation. O God, who has proven your love for all humanity by sending us Jesus Christ, our Lord, and has illuminated our human life by the radiance of his presence, we give you thanks for this, your greatest gift. For our Lord's days upon the earth, for the record of his deeds of love, for the words he spoke for our guidance and help, for his obedience unto death, for his triumph over death, for the presence of his spirit within us now, we thank you, O God. Grant that the remembrance of the blessed life that was once lived out on this common earth under these ordinary skies may remain with us in all the tasks and duties of this day. Let us remember his eagerness not to be ministered unto, but to minister, his sympathy with suffering of every kind, his bravery in the face of his own suffering, his meekness of bearing, so that when reviled, he reviled not again, his steadiness of purpose in keeping to his appointed task, his simplicity, his self-discipline, his serenity of spirit, his complete reliance upon you, his Father in heaven. And in each of these ways, give us grace. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.